The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Reverend Dr. Grace J. Sun Kim, is professor of theology at Earlham School of Religion and the author of 20 books, including The Grace of Sophia and Intersectional Theology, an Introductory Guide. Her latest book, published in 2020, is Hope in Disarray, Piercing Our Lives Together. She's also a contributing editor at Spirituality and Health magazine, where you can read her latest essay, Body Prayer for Every Day, on our digital platform, spiritualityhealth.com. Grace Jason Kim, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you so much, Rabbi, for having me. It's so exciting to be on this platform. I've written several pieces for Spirituality and Health, so it's great to be on this podcast with you today. Well, I'm looking forward to it. We're both contributing editors at the magazine, and we both have, I don't know, you work there. I was going to say a love for Earl and <laughs> College. So I don't work there. Maybe if you do work there, it's not what I'm imagining it to be. But I've been there uh, at conferences, and the fact that you can get a master's in theology with an emphasis on writing as ministry, that is just If I could talk myself into a third master's degree, I would do that. Yeah, it's a very exciting program, and and it's growing and growing every year. So we're drawing students from all walks of life. You know, everyone has a desire to write a book one day. It may be that desire or just to write better, but yeah, we are drawing students from all walks of life. Yeah, well, you've written 20, which is not (laughs) not bad. I've written 36, so you've got a ways to go. But still. (laughs) So let me start. Uh, with something you wrote in your book, Intersectional Theology. And this is a quote from the book. For most of Christian history, straight white male theologians have spoken for everyone else, as if their theologies do not reflect the bias of their own social positions and power. This has meant that our theologies have been partial, a reflection of only a very small slice of the whole of human experience. Close quote. So that's clearly true, accurate. And I would say what's true of Christianity is true of all religions. Mostly their theologies are written by men, and they are all just presenting a slice of the whole of human experience. And then I would say that limiting theology to the boundaries of a given religion, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever it is, limiting a theology to a specific faith also limits us to a very small slice of the whole of human experience. Is there a way to step outside all of these boundaries, all of these labeled theologies, and glimpse what may be universally true rather than 
merely religiously sacred? Wow, that's a very deep question. So just to um, backtrack, I think within different religions, as you mentioned, it is mostly men. So it could be non-white if it's a Hindu religion or so forth, but it is written by men. But what happens is after it's written and shared within the religious faith system, it's presented as the truth, as if no other voices or no one else's experiences can help interpret the divine or our understanding of the divine in our whole world. So in that way, from my writing as a Christian theologian, for the last 2,000 years, it's been written by mostly white heteronormative male theologians from Europe. And they have presented it to the rest of the world or to the rest of Christianity all over the world as if that is the only way to understand God or God's presence in our life. And so anything else, if a Black woman speaks or a South American man speaks or an Asian woman speaks, they they kind of push us aside and say, oh, maybe, maybe not. And so we're kind of pushed to the margins rather than accepting it as a different or a newer or a reimagining way of understanding theology, a Christian theology. And I would say that would happen to all kind of religions. If we allow women to speak or people of color to speak or Africans or South Americans or Asians to speak, I think it will enrich our dialogue about how we understand God and God's presence in the world. Because in most of the major religions in the world, you know, God is viewed as the infinite, the creator, the one that put everything into the universe, right? So this infinite being, and we human beings are this finite human being. Our minds are too small to understand the fullness of the divine. So if we get as many people around the table to help us understand, and understanding that every individual is intersectional or our understanding of ourselves is intersectional in the fact that I'm not just a woman, I'm not just a Korean woman, but also I'm I'm an able woman, I'm a middle-class woman, I'm an educated woman, all those uh, Christian women, all those identities intersect. And in some cases, there are powers that marginalize us from our own identities. So we are very complex beings. You, Rabbi, you're complex. I'm complex. Every person, we have multiple identities. So I think if we welcome everyone at the table, and that's why it's so important to have interfaith um, dialogue too, interreligious dialogue, because we need everyone at the table to help us understand the, uh, the notion of this divine in our life, in our experiences, in this journey of life. And, and I appreciate that, but I still have the same question in a sense that, yeah, I understand that bringing as many voices to the table as possible is going to expand and give us a more nuanced understanding of what God is, what reality is. But do you think there's a way to experience the divine that isn't labeled, that steps out of all of those things that that in that experience, I'm thinking like a mystical experience of the divine, where you're not a Christian anymore, you're not a woman, you're not Korean, you're not American, you're not middle class, you're, you're nothing in a sense of those labels. You're something else, something, I don't know, like in Hinduism, the Atman, you know, the Atman yeah. is unlabeled. Uh -huh. Yeah, I think that's possible because language itself, you and I are speaking English right now, is very limiting 
you know, that's why in my own work, I bring in Korean language because there's some words in the Korean language that we don't have in the English language. And that would happen with Spanish and French and all the languages. So language itself is limiting. So we put labels on things, on our experiences, etc., to kind of help us understand. But we have to recognize that there's a constraint in that. So I actually welcome your understanding of, you know, something beyond the labels and beyond what you kind of mentioned earlier. And I think why we love labels, particularly from a Christian perspective, is in Christianity, it grew out of the Greco-Roman period. And the Greek philosophy was heavily influenced in Christianity in the sense that everything became dualistic. So heaven and earth was separated, man and woman, word and wisdom. Everything is separated and you put things in categories. So part of my task as an Asian American theologian, because in Asia, we don't think in dualistic terms. We think of both and and, and that's what intersectionality is all about. Both and and, things are messy. Things aren't as clear cut as Christian theology has tried to present itself for the last 2000 years. And I'm sure other world religions have have tried to do that too. So yes, I think, yeah, we could get rid of these labels and kind of experience the divine in different ways that we can't even describe ourselves because it's so we're so limited in our own capacity to communicate, to share, and to even describe these mystical experiences. Absolutely. And, and of course, you're right that you and I are talking English, so let's talk Korean. <laughs> so <laughs> this is what I have in mind. Uh-huh. Uh, Years ago, I was on the faculty of an amazing retreat program that the United Methodist Church has created. It's a two-year program. People go away for a week at a time on retreat, uh, four times a year. It's, it's just this amazing thing. And I was teaching on this, and there are almost always several recently graduated Methodist ministers. And one year, there were a lot of Korean ministers who were visiting the States and, and visiting this specific retreat. And we had a great time talking about language. And they told me, now I'm going to probably screw this up so you can correct me. And, uh, and maybe they were just you know, telling me the wrong thing. But they told me that one of the Korean names for God was Hananim. You got it perfect. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which they told me meant something like holy unity or sacred oneness. Am I still on the right track? Yeah. Han means one. And so Hana means one God, kind of one sacred, yes. Uh-huh. Or the, the honorable one with a capital yeah. O. Uh-huh. Yeah. So here's, here's my question. In your essay, and I'm going to jump around from books to essay, but in your essay, you quote Julian of Norwich, who says, the fruit and the purpose of prayer is to be oneed with and like God in all things. And I'm wondering if... The Korean language brings to the discussion a more readily available and more accurate uh, language for the divine than, well, something like Lord, which I find offensive. Mm-hmm. And when she's talking about being one, and if, if your name for God, if, you, if a name for God or word for God is Hananim, the honorable oneness or sacred oneness or something, it seems to me that that the language, you know, the Korean language in this case, really speaks to the truth of what Julian is saying in a much more profound and easily grasped 
uh, way than English Lord or God, or which is always dualistic. Yeah, I would agree with you. But when Christianity came to Korea, what they did was, so Hananim we were already using, but then when Christians came, they added it and made it Hananim Aboji. Aboji means father. So suddenly God became God father, if you're going to translate it into the English language. Because of the patriarchal understanding of Christianity, the white Christianity that white male Europeans have been talking about in the last 2,000 years. So then Korean Christians started not just using, we still use Hananim, but then they they kept adding Aboji, which means Godfather. So I think that kind of ruined it in a sense, because then you brought in this white patriarchal notion into this earlier Korean notion of the oneness of God. But I think your earlier question, yes, with Julian, or I think it just, yeah, it fits in perfectly. That's why I think dialogue like this, I'm so glad you were able to spend time with the pastors from Korea. When we dialogue like this, we learn so much and it widens our eyes, our minds, our perspectives, because we ourselves alone, it's so limited. You know, we need to grow every day. So thank you for sharing that. And I think it is helpful. It's just, I feel like white Christians kind of ruined our, our original term. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, that was my sense. Yeah. And and when I, I brought up something, you know, I, I made the same or a similar point to the, pa- the the Korean pastors. And, you know, they nodded and said, but, you know, we have to do what we're told to do. So, but this this notion of, mm-hmm adding that layer of masculinity and patriarchy and, you know, onto the one. Uh, I, I felt that was a major part of your book, The Grace of Sophia. The, the subtitle of the book is A Korean North American Woman's Christology. So that's you. You're, I, I yeah. imagine <laughs> that you are the Korea, uh, Korean North American woman. But the way, I don't know if, if people heard it the way you actually wrote it, it's not a Korean North American woman's theology, as if this is Grace's theology, but women's, it, it was, in other words, this is a theology for that, that might speak to Korean North American women. Okay, if that, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah, and I'm hoping it will speak to all women, too. Well, speak to okay, men. <laughs> I, that's where, that, I, I, I was going to go there, but you've uh-huh. already take that, you've taken care of that, but I would say it speaks uh-huh. to everybody who isn't locked into the patriarchy. Yeah. So you write, in this book, conceiving of Jesus as an embodiment of Sophia can be meaningful to Korean North American women. Okay, I, I'm going to take your word for it. I'm not Korean and I'm not a woman. But speaking of, or conceiving of Jesus as an embodiment of Sophia is incredibly powerful. Yaakov Burma, uh, the German Christian theologian, if I remember right, when he wrote about Jesus, he always spoke of Christos Sophia. Christ Sophia, Christ wisdom. And this notion of Sophia as the first, I mean, mean, according to the book of Proverbs, chapter 8, verse 22, she speaks for herself and she says she's the first of God's manifesting. She's the first child of God and she's really the mother of the rest of creation. And you see that in different mystical traditions that speak of the mother being, you know, the, the origin of things. So, so let me see if I can make sense out of this. My sense is that conceiving of Jesus as an embodiment of Sophia can be transformational for all Christians, for everyone, anyone who's interested in Jesus. 
and that the return of Sophia, or the Divine Mother in all of her forms, so in Hebrew, Chachma, Shekhinah, also Hebrew, but Kali, Tara, Prajna, Kuan Yin, you speak about Prajna and Kuan Yin in the book quite a lot, Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. This uh, naming of the divine, all of which is, you know, feminine divine mother names, is vital for a deeply spiritual life, regardless of one's religion or lack thereof. And, and here's my question, it seems to me essential if humanity is going to progress in its spiritual development and not get trapped in the patriarchal notion of things. So what, what's your sense of that? Well, thank you for uh, this wonderful question. And thank you for reading my book so thoroughly. I'm just impressed and I'm just kind of thrown back because actually that was my first book. And after I wrote it, I said, I'm going to write about Jesus for the rest of my life. But actually, I never returned to Jesus and I moved to spirit. But I'll get to the spirit part later. But I think it's so important As I mentioned earlier, the problem with Christianity was it merged in the Greco-Roman period with, with Greek philosophy, which emphasized dualism. In the dualistic mind frame and in a dualistic world, everything is separated. So the word and wisdom got separated, male and female got separated. And for me, the separation did so much disservice to Christianity than service. In the sense that when we think of Jesus, and and as you mentioned, Hakma and, and Sophia, the New Testament is written in Greek, so they use the word Sophia in Greek, which means wisdom. Jesus is associated with wisdom all throughout. So you mentioned some of the Old Testament um, passages to, or the first Bible or the Hebrew Bible. So it was already present in Christianity. But as Christianity kept growing in this white, patriarchal, Eurocentric way of thinking, they suddenly eliminated this understanding of Sophia. You saw it in the early church writings, and then it suddenly disappeared and almost kind of wiped away, which did so much disservice. You know, when within Christianity, when we think about God, you know, God is the God of liberator. So we see that in the story of Exodus. We see that all throughout. And when we look in the New Testament, God is the God of liberator. When Jesus comes and, and Jesus says, I am the son of God, Jesus came to liberate. He was liberating the lepers. He was liberating the Samaritans. And he, he was with the woman. All these things that white male probably can't imagine. And they just don't know how to interpret these passages. So in a sense, we need to reclaim this notion of liberation, which is so embedded in if we kind of retrieve this understanding of Sophia, because I don't know about within uh, the synagogues and, and other faith traditions, but in Christianity, majority of the people sitting in the pews are women, right? The men aren't going. The women are going. The women under, are, are seeking 
But if we continue to talk in patriarchal terms about who God is and who Jesus is, the women are slowly going to disappear eventually. But to reclaim this notion that Jesus is Hakma, the Sophia, this uh, this feminine understanding of the divine, and you see the feminine dimension in all these other religions, as you mentioned earlier with Kuan Yin and and, and Shekinah. When we see this, you know, there, I, that's why whenever I do, I teach a course on interfaith um, dialogue. There is so much similarity between religions. And so that's why it's so important to, to dialogue and have this discourse rather than fighting and arguing amongst ourselves, because that only leads to destruction, that leads to war, that leads to killing. But I think the communication and the dialogue is so important. We can learn so much from one another. So I'm so grateful that you brought up this uh, book, Grace of Sophia, and I hope people will kind of um, retrieve and, and, and welcome the feminine dimension of the divine. It's so liberative. It's, it, it brings us together. And in, even in the Old Testament, it talks about God as a mother hen, and there are other feminine images of God. But because we live in a dualistic world, we, you know, we kind of separate the two. We can't seem to kind of welcome both of them in our understanding of God and understanding of Jesus. We keep emphasizing the maleness. We keep emphasizing logos, which is a Greek word for word, which is masculine. So we have to kind of move away from that kind of way of thinking in our mind frame, on our frame of mind, and be more holistic, be more welcoming, be more embracing of the fullness and the oneness. Going back to your earlier comment, the oneness of God. Yeah, in the synagogue world, there's all of these, I don't want to say hidden references to the divine feminine, because they're not really hidden. It's just that no one really pays any attention. They don't, you know, like on Friday evenings, we sing a song of welcome. The Sabbath is feminine. And she's called, you know, the bride. So you've got this very, I don't know, primitive, but I don't mean that in a negative sense, uh, imagery of of a masculine deity with a, a feminine partner, you know, Shabbat or Shekhinah in other contexts. In the mystical literature, she's everywhere. Uh, but even in the standard rabbinic literature, they talk about Shekhinah as meaning the presence of God. When they felt God's presence, they felt the present presence of the feminine. And they even say when they hear the voice of God, they call the voice of God a bat kol, meaning a, the daughter's voice. They hear a woman's voice. When in America, we're, we're trying to hear Charlton Heston's voice. So... It's there, but I don't, I don't think people really pick up on it because the clergy and the educators aren't trained in it and probably don't see the value in it. Yeah, that's the same with Christianity. And because not all denominations ordain women, you know, and the ordination of women has been very recent, maybe 50 years, the interpretation for the last 2,000 years kind of did not want to focus on the feminine dimension. And as you said, it's there. It's just, it's not really hidden. It's just there. Just people ignore, people push it aside and people don't want to talk about it because they feel like it's so offensive to talk about the divine and feminine language. I don't know why people find it offensive. I think it's just the 2000 year history for at least Christianity, that if you say something different, people think that's so 
out of this world. It, it can't be right. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just conditioning. So we, we don't have a lot of time left, and we really haven't talked about the essay on body prayer. So let me make you know I I, I appreciate you and our listeners indulging me in these other questions, which I find so interesting. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about body prayer. But to do so, I still want to quote to you from The Grace of Sophia. This is a, another quick quote from the book. You write, the highest kind of knowing is intelligent and responsible doing. And that made me think of something in the Jewish tradition that you find in the Torah, in the Hebrew Bible, in Exodus, uh, where it says, na'aseh nishma," where the people say, we will do na'aseh, and then we'll understand what the heck we're doing. That somehow this responsible doing leads to intelligent knowing. And I'm wondering how body prayer might be linked to that. Yeah. So I think body prayer is so important because we as human beings are both body, mind, soul. So there we are multifaceted, but in our churches, I don't know about the synagogues and uh, and other faith traditions, but I have visited a mosque and um, Buddhist temple. People still kind of focus on the the speaking aspect of prayer. At least for Presbyterians, I'm an ordained Presbyterian minister. That is the most highly valued way of prayer. So through our speaking, which is also going back to this problem of dualism, we have separated everything up and we've, and we've compartmentalized rather than this holistic understanding of how do we practice faith? How do we come to understand God? How do we come to God in prayer? If we move away from the dualistic way, then we can pray with our bodies with our hands, with our feet, with our minds, with our words, with our language, it becomes a more holistic approach, which is what I believe God would require of us. And the prayer, you know, it is this doing, you know, sometimes, um, you know, these civil activists, when they say you have to kind of march, hold up banners and march down the street, you have to do something. And I feel prayer is also doing. So we pray with our feet, we pray with our hands and our body. And once we are able to, once we're moving and doing, then actually that will lead into this intellectual knowing. I think it's all kind of combined together. And I, I wish within Christianity itself would just move away from this dualism. Yeah, in in uh, one, and I can't quote the source. I just know the practice. But in in uh, I think it's a medieval form of Judaism. They brought back prostration practice, mm. uh, which is a very powerful thing to do. I I learned it more uh, powerfully from my work with Vedanta Hindu Vedanta swamis, where mm. we do prostration. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that whole body, laying the body out on the floor, you see Catholic priests and nuns doing that. It's sort of reserved for the elite and not the, the people in the pews. I mean, it's hard to do prostration if there are pews in the build, in the yeah. you know in uh-huh. the room at all. But yeah, there's something very very powerful about engaging your entire body in the practice. You write in the essay that that prayer is a quote, that prayer, though it may not be purposed with directly influencing God, would continue to positively change the nature of myself. This is the mindset we should approach prayer with every day. How has 
just speaking personally, how has prayer changed the nature of yourself? Yeah, that's a a really good question. I think, you know, I grew up in the church and, you know, when you're young and you're in Sunday school, they tell you, oh, pray for uh, good grades or pray for this. You know, God will give it to you. And they keep teaching us, ask and you shall receive. Things like that, which is okay. And so, but what happens is you keep thinking prayer is all for yourself and uh, it's God giving you things. But as you realize, you don't get everything that you pray for, right? Some people may be praying for wealth, I don't know, or health, and you have cancer. So I remember in seminary, uh, one of my classmates, an older Korean woman, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I was like, oh, I was devastated when I found out. And I said, oh my goodness, are you okay? Are you okay? Like I w- And she was just there calm. And she said to me, why not me? And I thought, wow, that's a strange wow, way yeah. to answer when everyone else is frantic. Like if I had breast cancer, I'd be frantic and I'm like all worried, like, please God heal me. And she said, why not me? And that had an impact on me because I think, you know, when we pray, it prayer does change us. And it makes us understand the world differently. It makes us understand God differently. God's not just this bank that we go to and retrieve whatever we want, like an account where we can take things out. So I think prayer changes us in so many ways. And that's why I think it's important to continue to pray because prayer, some people will say prayer changes nothing but ourselves. I think prayer does change other things too, but I think a a lot of it, it does change us. And I think we ourselves need a lot of changing. You know, this world is falling apart. We in the U.S. under this pandemic, you know, I'm Asian American, all this AAPI hate crimes and hate towards us. You know, we need a lot of changing that needs to happen here in this world. Absolutely. Our guest today, Reverend Dr. Grace J. Sum Kim, is the author of 20 books, most recently Hope in Disarray, uh, Piecing Our Lives Together. You can read her latest essay, Body Prayer for Every Day, on Spirituality Health's digital platform at spiritualityhealth.com. And you can learn more about her work on her website, gracejsunkim.wordpress.com. Grace, Thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. You asked me such great questions. So thank you for this time. And I I enjoyed every minute of it. Hope to be back again. Thank you. I would love that. Thank you. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like Essential Conversations, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow me on Spirituality and Health's website, where I now write a regular column called Roadside Musings. And don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Catherine Drury-Wagner. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening.
Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.